Would you please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24? Let's go to Luke chapter 24. We're going to read verses 25 through 28, and then verses 44 and 45. So, if Ken, would you stand, please? Luke chapter 24. Let's start first with verses 25 through 28. And he, you know where we are, that's the road to Emmaus, and Jesus is talking to the two disciples after his resurrection. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and is low of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. Now let's go to verses 44 and 45. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I have spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. You don't need to open that, but, but John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. You may be seated. Lord, we ask you for your blessing upon the preaching and the listening of your word. We are needy. We are incapable and unable to understand your word apart from your work. So we ask your help. We ask for your mercy. Help me to be faithful. Help me to be clear. And I pray that you would help the congregation also to be faithful in the listening. We all bear responsibility here. I'm not the only one bearing responsibility. I know that mine is more serious. But we all have responsibility before you. We all are going to give an account for how we, we listen to your word. So help us. We also pray for those who are not here this morning. We pray for the members who are traveling. We pray they would protect them, guard them. Pray for those who are sick. We pray they would be visiting them with your healing, with joy, with perseverance, with wisdom. And we also pray for the churches in the Salem area. We pray that your word would be proclaimed faithfully, that your people would embrace your truth and nothing but the truth, and that we would be small beacons of light in this dark place, Lord. So help us. 
Thank you for this wonderful church. Thank you for this wonderful congregation. I praise you for their love towards you, their faithfulness towards you. We pray they'll be glorified this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Once upon a time, there was a family. They had just got saved, some members of that family. And they were visiting, they were traveling. And they decided to pay, they saw a church building somewhere else, and they decided to visit that church. And as they got into that church, the minister told the congregation that he was going to be preaching from the book of 2 Maccabees. So suddenly they could not find the book of 2 Maccabees in their Bibles. Later on, the same minister made a reference to the book of Baruch. And that family was confused. To increase the confusion, after church, they had lunch and they decided to go to the movie theater. And randomly, and not knowing, they saw a title, The Da Vinci Code. And they said, oh, that sounds interesting. So they went to watch The Da Vinci Code. They saw that Tom Hanks was the star in that movie. And after the movie and the church service, there was much confusion in that family. The kids who were older asked the parents, why are our Bibles different from the Bibles in that church? Why don't we have those books in our Bibles? And if that question was raised towards you, what would you answer? Somebody said, why is your, your Bible smaller than my Bible? Why do you have less books than our Bible? How would you answer? Who decide which books form the Bible? Was it the Roman Emperor Constantine? Did the Bible originate with a group of very special bishops deciding which books would form the Bible? Or why do we have in our Bible Song of Songs, but we don't have the wisdom of Solomon? Why do we have the Gospel of Matthew, but not the Gospel of Judas? Why do we have Ezra, but not first and second Ezra's? Why do we have Apocalypse of John, but not the Apocalypse of Baruch? Why do we have the book of Isaiah, but not the Ascension of Isaiah? Why do we have the book of Ruth, but not the book of Susanna? You see, that's the question of the canon. And that's a vital question. And when I say vital, do you know what the word vital means? It's a matter of life and death. It's vital to know the canon. Where has God spoken? What books come from God Himself? That's crucial for the life of the church. What books come from the heart and mouth of God to guide and govern His church and His people? I was thinking about which books would we be willing to die for? And some of you are like, I'm not willing to die for any book. 
then shame on you. We should be willing to die for the truth of God. We saw last Lord's Day, Christian and faithful. Faithful dies for the truth. See, so you're thinking, if someone comes with a gun to my head and he says, do you believe that the book of Leviticus is inspired by God? And if your answer is yes, you're going to die. I will say yes. The book of Numbers, the book of Deuteronomy. But you see, if that same occasion, the same situation, and the man is asking me, do you believe that the book of First and Second Maccabees, the book of Baruch, the book of Bell and the Dragon, I will say with all boldness and clarity of mind, no, they're not inspired. So we need to know which books are God's book because some of us might die on that hill. And that's the question of the canon, the canon of scriptures. That's where we're going to be looking today. The, the whole purpose of this series is to study the Bible as a whole. But to study the Bible as a whole, we need to know the books that form the Bible. Today is about this, the canon of Scripture. So, the outline is very simple. The canon defined. And I asked the kids last night what canon means. And they thought there was a type of weapon. A boom! <laughs> that was the answer. <laughs> and we had to remind them that was missing an N there. Now that's the canon, one N, the canon of scriptures. So we're going to be a definition of the canon. Then you're going to be the canon defended or the necessity of a canon. And then the canon demonstrated. Okay, so that's my goal this morning. And I will have to move quickly. And I'm eager to send you my notes. I have much more in my notes than I'll be able to preach. So let's first of all define canon. What does the canon of the Bible, the canon of Scripture mean? And, and the word canon, the English word canon derives from the Greek kanon. And that goes back even to other Semitic languages, Hebrew. And, and the idea was of a straight stick. A rod that was straight. And you ask, what is the point? Remember, they didn't have rulers, so they would use a straight rod as a rod of measurement. And that's what the word canon was used for, for measuring something. A measuring stick, a ruler. Eugene Merrill, a Hebrew scholar, he he notes that the, semant the semantic development is from the idea of a literal staff used to measure length or straightness to a metaphorical, a metaphorical standard by which literary compositions were compared to determine their fitness for inclusion within a given corpus of literature. Meaning, does this book that we are looking at fit? 
the measurement of these other books? Can we place this book with these other books? Does this book fit here? That's the idea of canon, measurement. And we see Paul, it's interesting how Paul used the same Greek word in Galatians 6, 16. He says, And as for all who walk by this, and then he has the word canon, this rule, this canon, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. And you see that, God, that, that Paul here is speaking about a measurement, a standard of ethics, a standard of life. And he's using the word canon as a measuring stick. So, we can say that the term canon points to a body of literature that was regarded as uniquely important, indispensable for living and learning, because it had divine authority. So, canon refers to the standard or norm of inspired scriptures that govern the church. So, the canon is this body of writings that are inspired by God and give us the credenda, what we believe, and the agenda, how we are supposed to live. That's what the canon means. And it's interesting because it's with the, this idea of a body of literature that we have the word Bible. We often use the word Bible in English, and we have reasons to use the word Bible comes from the Greek. You have the singular biblios and then biblia, a plural. And then in the Latin, biblia could be used for either singular or plural. And I think that's the beauty because that's exactly what the Bible is. It's many books forming what? One book. So that's why we use the word Bible, the book formed with many books. So we can define the canon. Once again, define the canon of the Bible as the body of writings that God has given to rule the church. The Christian canon is composed of 66 books. And I'm using our English Protestant Bibles. 66 books. 39 in the Old Testament. 27 in the New Testament. 39 in the Old Testament. And I'll show you as we are going to see in the next sermons, we could say that there are actually 24 books. That's how the Hebrew Bible that Jesus had in the synagogues was 24 instead of 39. And the reason is that they would put some books together. So you don't have First and Second Samuel, we have Samuel. You don't have First and Second Kings, you have Kings. And then you don't have 12 scrolls of the 12 minor prophets. You have actually one scroll with the 12 minor prophets. We're going to see more about that, but that's one of the ways. We, our English Bibles, we have the Torah, the law, with five books. Then you have the historical books, that's 12 books. You have poetry and wisdom. And then you have the prophets, they're divided in major and minor. Not only that, we also have the New Testament we have four Gospels, then we have a historical account, that's Acts. Then we have 13 of Paul's letters. And then we have general letters, Hebrews through Jude, and then we have Revelation. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, he said, uh, The two testaments, the 66 books, are the two lips that God used to speak to His people. 
I think it's a beautiful metaphor. Those are the two lips, and you need the two lips. You cannot speak just with one. You need both lips to speak clearly to his people, and that's all we have here. Uh, there are two misconceptions as we come to the canon, uh, uh, two, two very problematic ideas. The first one is people say, oh, the first time, the first reference to the word canon is actually in the fourth century after Christ. Yes. Yes. Athanasius, or Athanasius, the bishop of Alexandria, he's the first one to use the word canon for the whole body of scriptures. And I think it's low in, from what I can see here, the computer seems to be low in battery. I don't know if, can anybody see that? Can we, is it plug the computer? Is it right? Does it say that's low in battery? Yeah. <laughs> I just see a red, like, red warning right here. Thank you, guys. So there are two very misleading ideas when it comes to canon. The first one is this idea, and you guys can look at here. They are taking care of that. Don't worry about that. We have people taking care of this. The first one is this idea that since the word was first used in the 4th century, therefore there was no canon before that. That's very problematic. We don't find any word such as religion in ancient writings. And then are you going to tell me that there was no religion in ancient times? You see, there was no word for religion. So are you going to tell me that there was no religion? Or similar, the word Trinity. Oh, there was not the word Trinity. It's not because there was not a word to describe something, that there was not the reality of that thing. It barks like a dog, looks like a dog, smells like a dog. It's a dog. So that's all we see. So we've got to be very careful with this fallacy of, oh, since the word was first used in the 4th century, after Christ, therefore the canon came in the 4th century. No, that's very poor. The second, is, the second misconception is the idea that the Bible or the canon was formed in the Council of Nicaea. And that's the idea explored by Dan Brown, especially with the Da Vinci Code. And sadly, many Christians believe that. Many Christians believe that the Bible was canonized by a group of men establishing which books were supposed to form the Bible. So these people say the, it was the Council of Nicaea that the Bible was created. First of all, the Council of Nicaea was not about the Scriptures, but was about the doctrine of Christ was an issue with Christology, not Bibliology. And second, that's just myth. That's myth that propagated and people start buying to that. So I like what Michael Kruger says. So there was the, the misconception, the myth of the Council of Nicaea. So Michael Kruger, he says, the fact of the matter is that when we look into early church history, there is no such council. Sure, there are regional church councils that made declarations about the canon, 
for example, Laodicea, Hippo, Carthage. But these regional councils did not just pick books they happened to like. But instead, they affirmed the books that they believed had funct functioned as foundational documents for the Christian faith. In other words, these councils were declaring the way things had been, not the way that they want them to be. And then he says, In the end, we can certainly acknowledge that humans played a role in the canonical process, but not the role that is so commonly attributed to them. Humans did not determine the canon. They responded to it. In this sense, we can say that the canon really chose itself. I like what J.I. Packer says. He says, The church no more gave us the New Testament canon than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. Isaac Newton didn't give us gravity. He just recognized that there was such thing. The same with the canon. So, we define the canon. Let's move to the canon defended, the necessity of a canon. And here, my goal is not to present a, a, a historical argument for the necessity of the canon. That's what we see often, is people quoting ancient Jewish rabbis or just the church fathers and try to go to the historical movement. What I want to do is primarily a theological argument for the necessity of a canon. I believe that there is a, a, a very clear biblical, as we understand the theology, that there is a need for a body of writings. And I would say that the inspiration and the covenantal nature of the Scriptures are the basic necessities for a canon. Michael Horton, he says, Like the ruins... The devastation of a grand castle. Human knowledge of God is grossly disfigured. For both a true interpretation of nature and any news of God's gracious gospel require special revelation. If faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, we need a canon that delivers the authoritative teaching that we are to proclaim to the ends of the earth. It's necessity. It's necessary, a body of writings that are inspired by God. So the first one is, what I would say, inspiration and canonicity. And some people are going to say, ah, oh, you, going to inspiration as an argument. That's a circular reasoning. Yes, it is. We've got to always go back to the highest authority. We are always quoting and going to the highest authority when you're promoting an argument. And there is no higher authority than the Bible itself. So if you're going to defend the Bible, we need the Bible. Right? You defend a lion, Spurgeon said, by what? Unleashing the lion. That's the same thing. We use the Scriptures. So, I would say that we have a speaking and communicative God, and His words are authoritative, more authoritative than any other words. Amen? God's words are higher, more powerful, more authoritative than any human word, than any word of man. Therefore, there is the necessity to preserve these words. This authoritative word must be distinguishable from all other words. 
Amen? How do we know that these are God's words? By God Himself declaring and preserving and having a body of words that are His. Peter Gentry, he, he writes, Canon is a corollary of inspiration and revelation. If we believe that God has spoken and His words have been written down, then the Word of God must be located in some texts. While other texts must be distinguished as not containing or constituting the Word of God, here the evangelical and Protestant view stands in opposition to the claims of the Roman Catholic Church, that the Church gave us the Bible and that the authority, and it has authority to determine its limits and interpret it according to its teachings. The Protestant view holds that God gave us His Word and the church recognize its claims. Okay? So, by virtue, by virtue of the divine origin, divine inspiration, the scriptures have an internal power of self-authentication and self-validation. Man does not determine which books are inspired by God. The books themselves authenticate their divine origin and therefore their canonicity. Oh, that's fine. Yeah, no, no, don't worry about that. <laughs> Doesn't work anyways. <laughs> According to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church doesn't make the truth. The church doesn't produce the truth. The church holds forth the truth that has been given to us. Amen? That's very important. Here's another one that we often neglect, the, the rule of the Holy Spirit in the canon. That's fascinating because we, as evangelical Christians, we are all about the inspiration of the Scriptures and the power of the Holy Spirit to inspire the Scriptures. And then we talk about the power of the Holy Spirit to illumine our eyes, how we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes. And then we talk about Sola Scriptura and the sufficiency of the Scriptures. And then when it comes to the canon, we say, oh, wait, 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 wait. We don't need the Holy Spirit here. We just need history to tell us. That's how we act when it comes to the canon. People have a hard time with the selection of the books in our Bible. Say, who, who, who decides which books are canonical? Who decides which books must be part of the, the Bible? And then we always go to the ancient Jewish rabbis and the church fathers and the apostolic fathers, but we never go to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works in the church so that Christ's sheep can hear His voice in the, inspire, in the inspired documents. That's very important. It's not random individuals who choose which books. It has always been the Spirit of God working in the community of God's people. That's very crucial for us to understand. John Frame, he says... Remember that the church did not canonize the Bible. It did not, did not make the Bible authoritative. 
Rather, it reads, it read these books and discovered that God had already made them authoritative. Basically, God illumined this writing so that the church could recognize God's voice in them. As Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And that's fascinating because you look at the history of the church and you had very godly men, very faithful men, that when it came to some books, they were inspired. Do you know what they said? Oh, no, this, this, this book is not inspired. So think about Martin Luther, one of our greatest heroes in the Reformation. There were some books that were inspired by God, and do you know what he said? I don't like these books. I don't think they should be in the Bible. Do you know what God said? I don't care about what you think. I don't care how good you are, how powerful you are. It doesn't matter. Those are my books. The church as a whole, God's people, God's covenantal people have accepted those books. And the same thing, you have godly, faithful Christians who thought that they were hearing God's voice in the apocryphal books or the deuterocanonical books. So there were some faithful Christians throughout church history that said, no, I strongly believe that Maccabees are inspired by God and should be in the Bible. And they know what God said? Good for you. It's not my book. It's not going to be my Bible. The church as a whole, not random individuals, the church, the body as a whole, through the work of the Spirit, have recognized these books as God's inspired writings. That leads to the question, so the Roman Catholic Church is not part of the true covenant community since they added no inspired writings, right? And I would say yes. I don't believe that the Roman Catholic Church is a true church. Just like with any other cult, they add to the Bible. They add to the writings. They pervert the doctrine of salvation. They pervert the doctrine of Christ. No wonder they add books to the Bible. So how do we know which books are inspired by God? Don't ever neglect the role of the Holy Spirit, opening the ears and eyes of God's people from the time of Moses until the last writing was performed and, the, and God's people recognizing and hearing God's voice in these books that bring coherence and unity to the theme of Christ. But you see, it, it doesn't sound cool, right? It's like, oh, who, who chose the books? The Holy Spirit through His church. <sighs> I'm going to argue with somebody. I don't care how you're going to argue. They will never understand anyways. The carnal mind cannot comprehend these spiritual things. I'm all for apologetics, but apologetics has a limit. We need the work of the Spirit. So, second, there is the nature of covenant. Scriptures are a covenantal document. Michael Horton, he says, every covenant has a canon, meaning, rule, something to guide the community. 
Every community is defined by its constitution. As the word suggests, such a document actually constitutes a nation or community. There can be no covenant without a canon or a canon without a covenant. In fact, the covenant is the canon and vice versa. The canon is no more the creation of the church than a nation's constitution is the creation of its courts. And then he says, the covenant Lord creates a people out of nothing by his speech and shapes, regulates, and defines the covenant life of that people by what? By his canon. And you think about in ancient times, that's where the Bible is coming from. Moses is in Egypt. You have ancient Near East culture all around him. And every time you had a covenant, a suzerian and a vassal, and you have a covenant, you need documents. The writing of documents for this covenant. And you always had two copies. One for the king and the one for the ones who the king was make a covenant with. That's why you get to the Ten Commandments and you have two tablets. And people say, oh, the first tablet says that, the second tablet says that. No, 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 no. Both tablets have the same content. And one was for the king and one was a copy was for the people. So they could read and be reminded of the covenant that they had in the agreement and the stipulations. Biblical canonicity shows itself from its inception to be of the lineage of a covenantal canonicity. So, for example, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, look how Paul says. First of all, he refers to the old, to the Hebrew scriptures as the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. That's the, the word testament derives from the Latin and then goes back to the Greek and means covenant. So we have Old Testament means the Old Covenant, New Testament, New Covenant. And Paul says, But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they were. They were? They read what? The Old Covenant. Covenantal documents were supposed to be read, read in public, to remind people of their duties, responsibilities, and privileges inside that covenant. Oh, there's so much we could talk about. The, the preservation and the location of the covenantal documents. The covenantal documents were strictly, painfully, and seriously preserved in sacred places. And we have the, uh, a very clear biblical example with the Ten Commandments. That's the first reference to a canon preserving God's writings. And where is the Ten Commandments placed? And where is the ark? In the tabernacle and then in the temple. And that's a pattern where the other writings are going to be preserved inside the temple of God. Start having a pattern here. There was extreme care in the transmission and preservation of these divine documents since they were vital for the covenant relationship. Our God is a speaking God and a, a God who is a covenantal God. He's a covenant-making God. Therefore, His covenant is documented 
through writing in order to be preserved for the future generations. So, for example, Deuteronomy 31, verses 24 through 26, says, When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book, to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And he said, Take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. Here you have a picture of God's writings, His revelation being canonized, being separated in place in a specific location to be preserved. And you see, as you read the history, we don't have time here, but that's exactly what takes place with Joshua and Samuel and David and Solomon and the prophets. As they're writing, God's people recognize God's voice in these documents and they preserve that. It's part of the covenantal document explaining more about God's covenant with His people. And then you see, if you go to the book of Daniel, it's amazing. Because think about Daniel. Where, where is Daniel, the prophet Daniel? Babylon has been exiled. And then he's already, look at it, he's already mentioning the law and other prophets. So if you read Daniel chapter 9, you see that Daniel himself is using the other writings. It's amazing. That means that they were already preserving a canon of scriptures, a body of writings that they believed to be inspired by God. So Daniel mentions Jeremiah. That's, that's amazing. Daniel mentioning Jeremiah. Why? Because Jeremiah's writings were considered divinely inspired and preserved for God's people. Think about after the exile, after Daniel, people come back to Jerusalem, and then you have Ezra. And what does Ezra do? He reads from the law of Moses, meaning what? They had preserved those documents even in exile. God had preserved those inspired writings, and he reads that. We are informed that many prophets wrote their oracles. And then we know that there is a, a canon, canon conscience. The other prophets, the other writers are using the writings of the earlier writers. How are they doing that? Because they had preserved those writings. So as the Old Testament closes, it comes to an end, and we know that there is a after, you think about, in our Bibles, Malachi is the last prophet, the last prophetic voice, and there is a silence. A silence from that time. Think about Malachi, uh, Haggai, Zechariah, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah. And there is a silence. God stops speaking. Why? Because it's closed. That canon is closed. So we come towards the end of the Old Testament. Malachi, if you're using our English Bibles, or Chronicles, if you're using the Hebrew Bible, and there is, it's done. God's voice stopped. His revelation. And it's fascinating because it, the canon is complete, but we know that's lacking fulfillment. And they're waiting for a new covenant. Amen? 
That's what they're longing for, for the new covenant. And then you come to the New Testament and you have the two prophetic voices of, of John the Baptist and Jesus. And it's God speaking once again. Why? Because in Jesus we have a new covenant. Therefore, we need new documents. That's what's taking place. With the inauguration of the new covenant, with the death of Christ Jesus, there is the necessity of a new canon. And that's the New Testament canon being added to the Old Testament canon. Amen? I hope you guys are following. That's a, a, a hard subject and... And all the distractions here is just amazing. So may the Lord be gracious to us and help us. Uh, here, the last part. The canon demonstrated. Okay. And then we come to the New Testament and we see, that's important, we see that Jesus in the early church had a very specific Hebrew canon. There was already the Old Testament canon in the hands and in the hearts of Jesus and the New Testament writers. It's impossible to understand the early Christian church without an understanding of a body of literature to which it's ascribed absolute authority. You think about Jesus. His messianic birth is verified by Him being born in Bethlehem, which was predicted by the prophet Micah. His name is called Emmanuel, based on the word of the prophet Isaiah. When he's baptized at the Jordan, he gets his identity card from the three parts of the Hebrew Bible. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Beloved comes from Genesis 22, when Abraham was called to sacrifice his beloved son. This is my son, derives from Psalm chapter 2, where God speaks of the Davidic king. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And Isaiah 42, 1, identifies the servant of God, who will bring his Torah to the nations this way. You are my chosen one in whom I'm well pleased. And then Jesus is driven to the desert for 40 days where he succeeds against the tempter by citing to him the words of the Holy Scriptures repeatedly. Then he begins his mission and announces his mission statement in his hometown in Nazareth. He reads from Isaiah 61. Throughout his ministry, there is a conscious usage of Scripture repeatedly. He's either fulfilling it, teaching it, or arguing from it. Debates with opponents are never about the extent of the canon, but the interpretation of its content. So, as we read earlier, that's amazing. This passage, we're going to look at this passage again. But this passage shows how Jesus had a Bible. He had a Bible, a canon, with very specific writings that Jesus himself considered to have come from the mouth of God himself. And that's why we see, and he said, Oh, foolish ones, Luke chapter 24, and is low of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not, not, not necessary that Christ should suffer these things to enter into his glory? And look at that. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted them in all scriptures. So he, he gets the two major portions here. Moses, the prophets, and he equates as the scriptures. And then he keeps going, and he says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
What is the law of, the pro the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms? That's, that's how the Old Testament was structured. It's different from how we structure our Bible, but that's how exactly the Old Testament was structured. You have the Torah, you have the Nevin, the prophets, and then you have the Ketuvim, the writings. And Psalms, since the Psalm is the longest book of the writings, they, they would just say the Psalms instead of the writings. We see that Jesus has a Bible, a canon. Jesus used the Hebrew canon, and he assures that the, the, a body of new revelation will come in light of the new covenant. And my spirit, I'm going to send the spirit to you, he tells the apostles. And they will, the spirit will guide you all into all truth. And help you with the writings of the new covenant documents. So from Genesis to Revelation, we have a complete canon of God's covenantal and inspired documents for His people. No wonder Revelation finishes saying that there is a curse for anyone who adds into the book. And I believe that's not just Revelation, but to the whole book. It's a covenantal document from Genesis to Revelation. And if anyone adds or takes away from this covenantal body of documents, he's going to be cursed by God himself. As I said earlier, and we finish here, that's a vital subject in the life of the church. If we get the books wrong, we get the story wrong. Amen? If you get the books wrong, you have the story wrong. If we get the story wrong, then we are messed up. Right? So which books are inspired, living, active to guide, protect, sanctify, and vivify the church? I would say the books we have right here. The Spirit of God has preserved, attested, and effectively enabled the church to hear the voice of the shepherd in these books. So we can be certain that God has given us bread, not a stone or a, or a serpent, but He has given us bread, manna, in this book here. Amen? The books that form the Bible are self-authenticating, living, powerful. Despite all the attempts of Satan, evil men, and even godly men who are mistaken to remove books. We have Satan, evil men, and godly men who failed to destroy this canon. As Isaiah said, the grass withers, the flower fades, but what? The word of our God stands forever. And as Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And from the time of Moses until the last writing, Revelation, God's people heard his voice and verified that that was the canon that God had established. And today we also, we hear God's voice in these books. You can read me 1st, 2nd Maccabees. I read those. There is absolutely no life like in these books here. King, King Jehoiakim, he tried to destroy the canon by burning Jeremiah's scroll of prophecy. You can see that in Jeremiah 36. 
Marcion was incapable of removing God's canonical books. Remember the Marcionites trying to remove the Old Testament. Kings burned the Bible and were unable to conquer the power of the living inspired books. The Roman Catholic Church and other cults tried adding to the book, and even the great Martin Luther was unable to remove the inspired books from the Bible. And ironically, I end with his own words. The word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they make you, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Father, we thank you that you have given us bread, the bread of life, in scripturated writings to save us, sanctify us, and preserve us to glory. So we thank you for this book. Help us to hold to this book and this book alone. Keep us faithful. And I pray that this church, Lord, this church, this local church, would be standing upon your truth and your truth alone. This word is living, powerful, and we all here who are saved have experienced the power of this word. Thank you for giving us this Biblia, this one book that tells this beautiful story of how you came to seek your people to dwell in your presence forever. So we praise you and you give you all the glory. Thank you for the work of the Spirit in our lives and in the life of the church. All glory belongs to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.